0: What if our theology could get up from our armchairs and move into our world? That would be something worth paying attention to. This is the Armchair Anabaptist Podcast.
1: Lay your guns down Mennonites have usually found that the way to faithfulness is to separate from others. You know, and eventually, if only I am here, then at least
0: I'll agree with myself.
2: And I don't think that we can say we love someone and then shoot them. That doesn't make sense.
0: I always tell folks that, you know, look, if you're in a debate and winning the debate becomes more important than reflecting love towards the person you're debating, then do the kingdom of God a great service and shut up.
2: How do we encourage people to see nonviolence as something more than a position about war?
0: Because we're not just sitting around doing podcasts and theology. We're actually trying to live our lives as Christians.
1: This is a reckoning between you and me. The writing of all wrongs as we eat and as we drink.
3: You're listening to The Armchair Anabaptist. This is episode number 13, Where the Rubber
0: Meets the Road. I'm Kevin Weeb, And I'm Jesse Penner. And we are your hosts. We have been taking a look throughout this podcast at the theological regarding the peace position in loving our enemies. We've looked at the theoretical We've looked at uh, different scenarios that might come up, how we deal with different sorts of ideas, uh, different sorts of values, and how it all comes together. Today, we are looking at the practical. We are asking our panel about real-world examples that they've witnessed, where there has been enemy love in a profound way. Uh, We're looking at common and practical ways that we as Christians could show love to our enemies in the way that Jesus intended.
3: We're going to be hearing from Pastor Melissa Florer-Bixler, from Betty Priest, from Stephanie, Travis, Jennifer, and Deborah from the Many Rooms Community Church, which is a network of house churches in Winnipeg's North End. And we're also going to be hearing from our interview with Dr. Ronald J. Sider that we were able to do
0: just before his passing in 2022. We're going to be hearing from Dr. Sider first. Dr. Ronald J. Sider was the Founder and President Emeritus of Evangelicals for Social Action and Distinguished Professor of Theology, Holistic Ministry, and Public Policy at Palmer Theological Seminary. He was also the author of numerous books, including The Early Church on Killing, If Jesus is Lord, and Nonviolent Action. We asked Dr. Sider, what real-world examples have you witnessed personally where someone chose to love their enemies— in a profound way that stuck with you.
4: Yeah. Well, the obvious example is Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, it's utterly amazing. He he was fighting white racism that was uh, violent uh, and uh, and vicious. Uh, and as he marched, his people uh, faced dogs and uh, water cannons and jail. Uh, but all through that, he insisted, we don't use violence. Uh, we love even our enemies. Uh, and that's an utterly amazing uh, example and implementation of, of Jesus' call to love our enemies. He was clear, uh, you, you have to be vigorous on condemning justice, uh, injustice. You have to be clear on condemning racism. Uh, you have to be willing to risk your life to confront it, but um, we will not do it by uh, by killing the the white racists that are doing awful things. Um, Gandhi, of course, is another example in India, and eventually um, uh, took longer, but he won uh, the independence of India. Uh, or the overthrow of Marcos in the Philippines. He was a vicious dictator, uh, ruled the country for a bunch of years. But um, I think it was 1986, somewhere around there, um, he uh, had another election, uh, and he claimed that he won, but it was clearly false. Um, uh, he, um, he He had lost... And just masses of people uh, spontaneously came out into the streets, uh, perhaps as many as a million people, uh, and they confronted uh, uh, the tanks uh, and the huge military weapons of Marcos' army. Uh, but praying nuns just stood in front of the tanks, and the soldiers couldn't bring themselves to run the tanks over praying nuns. Uh, and um, Marcos uh, fled, came to the U.S., uh, and um, uh, Mrs. Aquino, who really had won the election, uh, became president. So uh, there are those kinds of examples uh, that have been uh, successful. It was a nonviolent campaign led by the um, trade union solidarity in uh, in, uh, Poland uh, that um, eventually overthrew the uh, communist uh, uh, dictatorship uh, in Poland in uh, 1989. uh, I think it was the year 1989-90. So there are examples again and again and again of people daring to risk their lives to love their enemies uh, but to defend justice and peace uh, in a nonviolent way. And again and again, it's worked. Not always. You know, Tiananmen Square resulted in a lot of massacre, uh, but um, it frequently works.
0: As our conversation continued with Dr. Sider, he shared more stories where he has seen this lived out in profound ways.
4: Well, you you remember the uh, white racist who came to uh, a black church's Bible study in the South um, uh, what was it, um, six, seven years ago? I forget exactly when. And uh, he shot and killed a number of the people. Uh, and at his trial, uh, the members, some of the members of the congregation, including people who had lost their husband or wife or or uh, daughter, um, said. We forgive him, uh, not that they can, in any way, tolerated the white racism, but um, you know it was a clear example of being willing to forgive, uh, even in the face of a an awful uh, kind of um, thing. Um, I think when. Uh, when Christians do that sort of thing, perhaps visit in jail uh, someone who has been convicted of uh, a violent crime against uh, a relative, uh, that is so astonishing that um, everybody says, what is going on? Or one thinks of the, um, I think the Amish folk in Pennsylvania, where somebody uh, a few years ago uh Time slips by. It was 10 or more years ago. Um, um, Someone came in uh, at their school and killed a bunch of the Amish kids. And their response was to love his family, to provide assistance for his family. Um, And people looking on said, what on earth is going on? But they were very... Impressed.
0: We asked Stephanie, Travis, Jennifer, and Deborah from Many Rooms Church Community in Winnipeg to share stories or examples that they could think of about how this has been done. Real world examples where someone has chosen to love their enemies in a profound way. Stephanie started out here talking about an organization in Winnipeg that she believes embodies this well.
2: I don't know if it fits, but it fit to me is that there's this organization called Bear Clan and it's a, a group of indigenous people who realized that our our community isn't being served well by the police or any, or the social services or anybody and instead of just, you know, protesting against the police, they formed a uh, a neighborhood watch that wanders everywhere and it is a it's what's beautiful about them is that they I haven't actually gone with them, but uh, others that I know have gone along um, on a on a walk, and they are welcoming and kind to everyone, whether they are, you know, indigenous or white or high or um, you know, whatever the situations, they, they, they are open, they're kind, they offer food, they offer uh, conversation and it just felt like such a positive way to to model, uh, rather than just being angry at the people who aren't caring for you, just showing us how to do it. Yeah. They started the Mama Bear. What's that? It's a, a group
5: of women that do the same thing and they go, just because some won't approach guys or what whatnot because of been abused so it's a easier to talk to a woman uh, so they started the mama bear clan
0: Deborah shared a story next
5: I had one girl on our um our block there's a there's a meth uh, um, house up the street unfortunately but anyways this poor girl she had she was high on meth and but anyways I had to bring her in I, I know there's a danger in bringing in meth addicts, but she, she's somebody's kid. I had to bring her in. And so I clothed her and gave her some water and the uh, and then someone called the police to take her to the hospital because she had too much. But um, yeah, there is those kind of interactions that happen because our situation is that there is a lot of drugs in the area, but you know, it's it's being neighborly, it's just loving people. That's all it is.
0: Jennifer talked about following Jesus's example.
5: One way that Jesus inspires me to um,
6: to practical ways to love my enemies is to have diversity in my life. And so not that I'm achieving this, but um, that his immediate circle of friends included, you know, the blue collar workers of his day and the tax collector, and the, you know, there were he, he connected with Gentiles and Jews and, and the the elite of society and, and the bottom of his society, and in that way um, I think he he was protected from some of the some of the black and white thinking maybe that that creates an enemy out of one and a friend out of the other, um, because he found a friend wherever he went, like with within, within a diverse circle that he had, he made friends out of people that would have been considered enemies.
2: Right, I, so one of the ways that we love is to not take sides too easily.
0: This is Stephanie speaking.
2: Even with, because when Travis is being hurt, well, my natural instinct is to take his side and to try and solve, like, to defend him. Not, and and same with each other. And and especially then when it's within our own church that there's conflict, uh, it can be tempting to think we need to fix it. But I think that's one of the biggest things that I am grateful to think I might finally be learning is that actually it's not my job to fix the conflict between two other people. Uh, but to actually try not to take aside and love both, uh, is maybe that sometimes is profound. But, and I was just thinking about what you were saying, Travis, that sometimes we have to actually let someone go in order to love them, like they hate us and we just want to convince them that they're wrong about us because we know they're wrong about us. And, and you keep hammering away at it and it is not appreciated. Uh, but that what, what I have experienced, I think a number of us have, is that when we back away, but we stay, like that's one of the benefits of long term sharing a neighborhood together, is that sometimes 10 years later, someone actually is ready to start talking to you again. And so that to me has been, I don't know if I've loved in a profound way, but it is a profound lesson for me to recognize this there's time, and if I can stay, open or if I can do my own healing work so that when in 10 years they're ready to talk to me I can actually talk to them, <laughs> then then I am part of, of reconciliation and it's sometimes way slower than we want it to be, but still beautiful. Very beautiful
6: mm-hmm. and miraculous. Mm-hmm.
5: Mm-hmm.
6: Slow miracles are miracles, we've seen them. Mm-hmm.
3: Pastor Melissa Flora Bixler is the pastor of Raleigh Mennonite Church in North Carolina, and she is the author of the book How to Have an Enemy. We asked her what real-world examples she had witnessed personally where someone chose to love their enemies in a really profound way that really stuck out in her mind. This is what she had to say.
7: Yeah, you know, I... Um, one of the examples of this that I think about is... Um, we, the um, the Quaker community in Fayetteville, North Carolina, not too far from us um, here in Raleigh, North Carolina, um, that is a community that moved to that place in order to assist um, veterans who had been uh, psych- psychologically damaged in war um, and to help them to get benefits to get the healing that they need to find places where they could worship that were um, attentive to the PTSD that that may accompany um, the, um, what they did um, as as part of this trauma um, and they've also had some really interesting experiments in reparative justice of of times when um, someone um, one one story of a veteran in particular who began to shoot through the doors of um, his apartment when when the police came um, after a, a a call about a mental health check, thinking again that he was back in Iraq in this in this place of um, someone coming to his to his door to break it down and harm him, um, and to watch this community that is. Deeply pacifist, deeply committed to nonviolence, to non-participation in war, walk alongside um, this man and say, um, we do, we're we're not, we're opposed to this um to this system that you have participated in. Um the people who you have killed and harmed are God's beloved people. Um And we refuse to let the system continue to make another victim of you. Um, And so so I've I've learned a lot about what it means um, to be both a pacifist and someone who is committed to breaking apart the systems of militarized violence that actually harm every single one of us. Um, The people who perpetuate that harm um, by participating in wars, and um, the people who are, who are victims of, of violence from um, especially the U.S.'s intractable position on um, world affairs.
3: Betty Priest is the CEO and senior consultant of a mediation company called Credence & Co. She's also an instructor in the conflict management program at Conrad Grable University College and the author of the book, The Space Between Us. As a mediator and as someone who does a lot of mediation for churches, uh, Betty is someone who's seen a lot of conflict, but also a lot of resolution to conflict. We asked her what real-world examples she has witnessed of people who chose to love their enemies in a profound way. This is her response.
8: That's a very interesting question. You know, we often look to survivors of violent crime when we think about this question. And this is good because there are people who have survived brutal, brutal experiences and have still found ways to love their enemies. What I find so interesting and what I'm so intrigued by is can we love our enemies when it comes to our more mundane life experiences? See, I've seen lots of websites and videos dedicated to showing how people have loved you know, the aggressor after a war, Um, someone who murdered their child, and so forth. And those are really moving stories. And I wonder, we go to these, you know, we go to these viewings of these videos, we watch go on these websites, we see these things, it's great. But I don't necessarily see that being translated into how do we love our much more mundane enemies, people at work or at church or in the family, who have done some kind of harm to us, but it's more maybe like a death by a thousand cuts if you know what i mean those kind of harms that are smaller perhaps they don't they don't make it to the newspapers these are just sort of the slights and injustices that we experience in our daily lives i'm intrigued by how even we in those less extreme situations how can we honor the humanity of those people in these and not fall into our more mundane hatreds and so i think about You know, I'm thinking about a situation that I'm aware of uh, where two individuals who had been friends encountered a deep and painful conflict uh, between their children, and that conflict between their children translated to their parents, to the the parents of those children, to these two friends, um, and then those two friends could no longer talk with one another for several years. And one of the individuals in that situation uh, shared with me later how she spent those years where they couldn't talk, um, nightly she prayed for God to embrace this person with God's arms of loving kindness. God, please embrace this person with your arms of loving kindness. God, please embrace this person with your arms of loving kindness. The two people in this situation had a deep and painful conflict with each other. And this daily commitment of praying for this other person it changes the person praying. I cannot pray for my my enemy, if you will, for God to love my enemy. If I pray nightly for God to love my enemy, it changes me. It changes how I respond to that person. It changes how I respond to the people around me. So I I believe that if we want to think about what we can learn from people who have loved their enemies in a profound way, one of the ways that we can learn to love our enemies in a profound way is to pray that God embrace this person with God's arms of loving kindness. We might not be able to be doing that yet, but God can. And the other thing that I would say is thinking again about these more mundane hatreds that we encounter in our congregations, in our workplaces and our families. I'm pretty committed to this idea of praying without ceasing. I sometimes call these breath prayers. Breath prayers that remind us of God's presence and that ground us in God's presence, even in the presence of a person who we're having tri- difficulty with. So let's assume that you need to have a meeting, maybe a family gathering with somebody, and there's going to be a person at that gathering who you find tricky. One of the things that you could, one can do is pray in advance um, and really visualize that gathering and pray in advance for God's presence during the gathering. The other thing that we can do is when we're in the midst of that gathering and we encounter that person, we can pray at the same time as we're having a conversation with that person. And we can pray things like, God, help me to love this person unconditionally. God, help me to love this person unconditionally. God, soften my heart, I pray. God, I'm needing help. Help me to love this person unconditionally. And this kind of a breath prayer can carry us through our gathering, through our meetings, whatever it might be. Allowing us to remember to honor this person's personhood even as we have the conversations that we need to have with them.
0: You know, Betty uh, Priest, in that interview really started actually walking us exactly where we want to go in this episode. Uh, We started out with these stories and we have Dr. Sider telling this incredible story about Martin Luther King Jr. We have stories about the Many Rooms Church and the interactions they've had taking in drug addicts, recognition of this Bear Clan Patrol and the beautiful work they're doing in Winnipeg. We have that incredible story that Melissa Flora Bixler shared about the Quakers who are working uh, with veterans who are dealing with PTSD and other things and offering outreach and support for them in that way, in really practical ways. These are huge, big sort of heroic stories that maybe capture our hearts and our attention. But as we go through this, what we want to do is kind of begin to walk it back towards the common. What does this look like for us in our everyday lives? So I think that Betty did a great job of sort of beginning to turn our eyes in that direction as we move forward. And that's
3: just it, right? We have these these incredible moments in our lives, right, where we may face these situations of incredible pain, a couple of times in our lives, hopefully only a few times per person, maybe. um, There's the odd person who has just an onslaught of a a lot of them, and then there's the odd person who doesn't have um, a whole lot of those really profoundly deep wounds. But on average, the, the average person has a few really deep wounds, but most of us spend most of our lives In the ordinary we spend most of our lives in much more petty and mundane kind of disagreements and we have to learn how to get along with people when it's not quite those same same level of enemy as those those like um situations of war or or murder and bloodshed and those those level of violence you know so for a lot of people we have to take it back to that level where how do we learn to love our enemy in the everyday when the enemy may not look like something in those incredible stories, where the enemy may look like someone that rubs us the wrong way every single day at work, someone who irritates us, someone who annoys us, someone who um, maybe even picks on us a little bit. But how do we learn to get along with them in the everyday moments of our lives? Or maybe there's a more normal kind of familial conflict as the situation that Betty shared, and how do we learn to follow Jesus in those moments as well? This is the direction that we're headed now in our conversations. What are some really common and practical ways that we as Christians can show love to our enemies in the ways that Jesus intended? We're going to explore this a little more in just a moment. We'll be right back. (laughs)
0: Asked many rooms church about really common and practical ways that we as Christians could show love to our enemies in the way that Jesus intended. Stephanie started out.
2: Well, you know, yesterday, Jen and Dave and I were talking about how it's actually where we experience this most is in our own families, hmm. right? Like it doesn't matter where you live, it seems that those those relationships can be so painful, right? Like people we hurt each other, and so my my thoughts of of one of the practical things to do is to stay open towards relationship to stay present maybe not physically always but to to be a you know to be to not withdraw to the point that you can't reconcile and to choose not to speak evil of that person because it can be tempting to tell your side of the story over and over to everybody and then that I think that that gets in the way of reconciliation if we choose not to speak evil then we will remain open I think
5: but that takes effort that mm-hmm. takes mm-hmm. actually working at it to
2: do it maybe in terms of sorry just along those lines when it maybe isn't a safe relationship to respond that the whole idea of staying open or present is is not is to be able to respond when there's evidence of change, you know, so it isn't, it isn't about being a doormat and throwing yourself right back in, but that to, to be willing to notice if someone does repent and want to do things differently, that can be scary to give it another try. And I'm not even sure if it's the best advice, but I think there's something about loving your enemy that has to live. I need so many tries, I think that's one of the hardest things about community for me has been that some people will not give me a second chance and I screw it up and then it's done and it hurts so much because I can't be perfect and so I need to be willing to give people another chance, maybe another 10 chances.
0: Or 77 times seven. Oh, yeah. yeah.
2: Oh, I don't know. That's going to <laughs> <laughs> okay,
0: cool.
6: We often forget to deliberately pray for our enemies mm-hmm. um, as a church.
0: This is Jennifer speaking.
6: You know, you pray for the people in your church that are sick, or you know, you pray for the, the needs or whatever. We often forget to pray for our enemies, but that seems biblical. I know uh, my husband and I. I feel uh, there's a certain politician and political party that has the potential to jeopardize his ministry and uh and so in the face of that real life um you know consequence or or concern that we have uh we have certainly upped our prayers for for those leaders um praying daily for the salvation of our leaders and for god's presence to be in their life as they make decisions um, because sometimes our leaders are our enemies or have the potential to harm us or harm ministry. So,
3: We asked Pastor Melissa what are some really common and practical ways that we as Christians can show love to our enemies in the ways that Jesus intended. This is what she had to say.
7: One, one important thing that I think we can do is um, we can start talking seriously about power in our communities um, that every time we're talking about loving our enemies, we're also doing a power assessment. Um, In this situation, who is being asked um, to bear the weight of unity? Who's actually been harmed? How have both parties participated in harm? How is this part of a larger system? Um, And then I think we can go back and say, now that we've done this work, not just about assessing individuals, but we can ask the question of why? Why did this happen? Um, what do we need to really address that's underlying this question um, of, of what happened here? And so I think this is really helpful for church conflicts, right? Um, is the answer to that why that you have someone who's never been held accountable for for saying whatever it is that they want to say, no matter how harmful it is? Or is it a problem with the governance structure of your church that it enables the same people to be in power every time? Um, This is really helpful for us in community conflicts. Um, As we're looking at the criminalization of homelessness, um, it isn't just that um, we have people who are breaking the law, but what's the why? What are we investing in as a community? Um, If we have people who are vandalizing churches and uh, breaking into our property, what's the why beneath that? What's the deeper question that we need to be asking? That's where we're going to find the love of Jesus, um, underneath all of that stuff that happens up here um, to the base of it, um, which is where God is redeeming all of creation um, through the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ.
3: We asked Betty Priest to address this same question, and this is what she had to say.
8: You know, I often tell people that, um, you know, when somebody goes to the gym, they go to the gym to develop some muscle strength that will carry them through the day. The same holds true when we spend time in prayer and meditation. When we spend time in prayer and meditation, it's like going to the gym for our souls, It becomes hard to love our enemies if we aren't spending time in quiet, really listening for God's presence, sort of being um, silent in God's presence or praying in God's presence either way, but really allowing our spirits and hearts to be transformed so that we can do, we can be the people that we want to be when we're not in prayer. And so I would say that a really practical thing we can do is maintain our commitment maintain a daily practice of prayer and meditation. That would be one thing. The other thing that I would do is to develop um, breath prayers that we can take with us, that we can pull out when we're in tricky situations, like the breath prayer of, God, I'm looking for your help right now. Or the breath prayer of, I love this person unconditionally. God, help me to love this person unconditionally. Or the breath prayer of, um, I am beautiful, I am worthy I am I am beautiful, I am worthy. something like this because it's when we don't feel beautiful and worthy that we're more likely to get mad at the other. So I am beautiful, I am worthy, I am beloved. I am beautiful. I'm... these are these kinds of breath prayers that if we carry them with us, we can it's like having them in your pocket. We can pull them out when we need them to be with us that'll that when we need them, and they can help us to stay grounded and caring and loving in the midst of those hard moments. And then, There's also the daily prayer for the other person. If there's somebody that we're struggling with, there's value in inviting or entering a time of prayer specifically for that person and inviting, um, I guess, God to embrace that person person with God's arms of loving kindness.
3: As our conversation progressed, Betty talked about the importance of embracing curiosity and humility as we engage in relationships with people that we might consider our enemies.
8: Yeah. You know, it feels like there are several spiritual principles that we really need to become good at in terms of loving our enemies, caring for the other. And one of them is curiosity. The other one I would say is humility. Um, And I would like to put those two together, humble curiosity. Uh, If I'm in a spirit of judgment then I am inclined to defensiveness. I'm also inclined to figuring out or to thinking about how you're wrong, how you're doing things badly and all of that. If I'm in a spirit of humble curiosity, let me start with the curiosity part. One of the things that we know is that even if it makes no sense to me, there's a reasonable reason behind the other person's unreasonable action. That person's action might be unreasonable to me, but from their perspective, there's reason behind it, and if I can come to my conversation with the other person with a spirit of deep curiosity, that they have something to teach me. There's something here for me to learn. Wow, does that change our interactions? If you and I are having a, a tr- tricky interaction with one another, and I remind myself, Betty, right now, be the student, be the student, be curious. What's making that? Per- what's that person's logic, or what's that person's reasonable reason behind their action? If I can come with that curiosity, I am much more open to being transformed by the interaction and I'm much more likely to see your kernel of humanity behind whatever happened between us. But for me to practice that curiosity also depends on humility. I wish that we as a church did a better job of teaching humility. Sometimes teaching humility has been, you're you're nothing, you're nothing, you're nothing. I don't think that's how it's meant to be taught. I think humility is about how do I show up to our conversation believing that there's something that you have to teach me? How do I show up to that conversation believing that I don't have the corner on truth, that there's a piece of the truth that I have, there's a piece of truth that you have, or maybe that I could be wrong. How do I come into the conversation thinking, Hmm, I could be wrong. What do you have to teach me? So this combination of humble curiosity strikes me as pivotal if we want to, if we want to deal with conflict well, let me just offer this to, you know, um, so much of conflict is premised on the principle of blame. We are blaming the other, blaming the other. Curiosity says, I'm not blaming the other. The curiosity says, what makes the other tick? What makes them who they are? Humble Humility says, um, I think humility plus courage invites me to encounter the other kind of level to level, eye to eye, rather than me being above them and them being below me.
0: I think as we listen to these panelists talk and share this wisdom with us, what comes to mind for me again is the fact that as we think about stories of forgiveness, we think about ways where people have interacted with their enemies Uh, often we look to these big, huge sort of life changing moments, but the really significant stuff in so many ways happens in the day to day. It's not glamorous, it's kind of boring, it's rote, but actually those rhythms that we establish in those places in the mundane are going to characterize how we respond in those big moments too. And the same sort of principles that are brought up here, uh, things like humility, and curiosity and uh, forgiveness and an awareness of how the power lies in different situations, those sorts of principles apply just as significantly to those big heroic moments as they do to the very simple things in our lives. And so we need to live with those principles no matter where we're at.
3: You know, when I was in classes at Conrad Grable in their conflict management program, Betty and some of the other instructors uh, repeated this uh, this piece of information that I found really fascinating. And I'm glad that it was repeated for us to help us remember it. But they told us that the brain cannot do these two things at once. It cannot both at the same time be condemning of something or someone while also being curious. So passing judgment on someone for something while also being curious about I wonder why they're doing that. Those two attitudes cannot be embodied at the same time. So while we cannot do both at once, what we can do is choose. Are we going to embody a disposition or an attitude of condemnation? Or are we going to embody a disposition of curiosity? And as soon as we embody that disposition of curiosity, then all of a sudden it opens all kinds of doors in in our own thinking and in our own hearts even. And then a lot of things stem from that, even humility comes from that as well. Because then we begin to think, well, maybe this is happening and that is happening. And maybe what if I was in their shoes? What would I do if I was faced with that? And then all of a sudden we may find ourselves thinking, hmm, I'm not so different from them after all. You know, our song today is by someone named Scott Hebert, and it's a song called Deluge. And this song uh, has some interesting lyrics in it. There's a line that says, They say we'll soon decide who will remain and who's to go while they cut their ties. And then the line says this, It doesn't matter. We're all infected inside. So it's painting this picture of this group of people who seems to want to decide who's in and who's out, who's infected and who's clean, who's dirty and who's not. But what they don't realize is that everyone is actually infected inside and they don't seem to even realize it. And it's this, it's this very poetic but beautiful picture of, of what is the human condition. We're all infected with sin. And if we would take the time to as has been suggested be a little more curious and a little more humble then and and as you suggested as well to to do this day in and day out in the mundane in the boring with with all of the humdrum of life then then maybe we would build those spiritual muscles to the point where should we ever need them in those incredible situations then maybe just maybe we would have the spiritual fortitude to love our enemies in those incredible ways as well. This is Scott Hebert. Say I
1: walk alone Along this riverside And they lie the Clouds further than dark In the sky But my fears They wither Leaned over that bank and I drank and I drank till that river ran dry. Matter, we're all infected inside.
3: Theodactos Podcast, and Theodactos is a publication
0: of the Evangelical Mennonite Conference. You can check us out online at www.thearmtieranabaptist.ca and find us on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are found. A special thanks to our guests who have joined us today, Pastor
3: Melissa Florer-Bixler, Betty Priest, and the Many Rooms Church community in Winnipeg. We were also honoured to be able to interview Dr. Ronald J. Sider in April of 2022, just a few months before his passing. And what you heard of him today was from that interview.
0: Our intro song is First Communion by Dane Jones-Hill. And our feature song today was Deluge by Scott Hebert. Our executive producer is Erica Fair.
3: Our producer and audio engineer is Kevin Weeb, And our administrative assistant and wizard of all things
0: web-related is Ruth Block. I'm Kevin Weeb, And I'm Jesse Penner. And we have been your hosts for the Armchair Anabaptist. We certainly hope that what you have heard today will do more than stay merely as food for thought, but that it can help inspire each of us to get up out of the comfort of our armchairs and translate into living more like Jesus.
3: Join us next time as we continue our journey looking at the life of peace and as we dive into a discussion about how we are to view military and police involvement, what the difference is between the two, and how people of peace grapple with those kinds of careers. Join us next time on The Armchair Anabaptist. Oh,